Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Funding for The Serial Dynasty comes from listeners like you through your generous donations. If you are interested in donating to this movement, go to SerialDynasty.com and click the Donate button. Serial Dynasty is also sponsored in part by Audible. Audible is offering for Serial Dynasty listeners to download one free audiobook. To receive your free audiobook to be listened to on any smartphone, tablet, or computer, simply go to audibletrial.com slash Serial Dynasty. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Serial Dynasty. As always, I want to thank you for downloading this episode, and thank you again for spreading the word and helping to make this movement bigger and stronger by the day. In today's episode, I want to start out by addressing the NCIC discussion that we had in last week's episode. After that, we're going to walk through Undisclosed Episode 6, The Suspect, And then we'll end the show today by reading some listener emails and tweets. So first off, the NCIC discussions. You'll remember in the previous Undisclosed episode, Susan Simpson brought to light that Officer O'Shea had done an offline NCIC search to see if anyone had run Hayes' plates. Officer O'Shea had done an offline NCIC search, the purpose of which was to find out if any officers had run Hayes' plates through the NCIC system since her disappearance. This is a method often used by law enforcement to help track a vehicle that they're looking for. There were two entries on the return that Officer O'Shea got that are called into question. Twice on February 4th, searches were made in Baltimore County, or at least by Baltimore County officers, for Hayes Plate in the NCIC system. Now the big question is with that, does that mean that her car was spotted in Baltimore County on February 4th before her car was actually found? It very well may mean that, but there are also some other explanations. And, spoiler alert, I don't have the answer for you. And truthfully, I don't think anyone is going to be able to find the answer as to what happened with those NCIC searches on February 4th. All we can do, like anything else, is to search for evidence and theorize. One of the theories out there is that these NCIC searches were simply the result of an officer entering the license plate number into their mobile data terminal to gain more information on the case, perhaps after an APB or a BOL was put out. I spent quite a bit of time and quite honestly, probably too much time, because I went into this knowing that we weren't going to find the answer. And along those lines, I did mention last week that I was going to have dispatcher Ryan Luker on the show today. Uh, I did actually sit down and record with him and a local law enforcement officer a couple of days ago and decided to go ahead and leave it out of the show 
uh, simply for the reason that we have a lot of other content to cover today, and it really didn't offer much insight at all. In fact, I wouldn't be bringing up the NCIC search at all if I hadn't come across some new information that may or may not help shed a little more light on the subject. So I'd like to quickly address that, and then we're going to move on. So the big question was, in my mind and several other people's mind, through multiple emails that I've received and tweets and private messages, was why would they be putting out a BOL or an APB for Hayes Carr on February 4th? She's been missing for three weeks. The body had not been found yet. Why that day? It didn't make any sense. Well, through doing some research, I found some information that I think may shed some light on the topic. Earlier this week, I was reading an article in the Baltimore Sun that a listener had emailed to me. And while reading that article, I noticed on the sidebar, there was a section that read, Related Articles. And at a quick glance, I saw that all of the articles were all related to the Heyman Lee missing persons investigation and the homicide investigation. What caught my attention was the date on the first article that was written on the case in the Baltimore Sun. The date the article was written was February 4th, 1999. It's a very short article, and it reads as follows. The headline says, Information sought on woman missing since mid-January. Police are seeking the public's help to find an 18-year-old woman who has been missing for three weeks. Hey Min Lee, who live with family members, and then it gives the address that I'm not going to read, was last seen about 3 p.m. January 13th at Woodlawn Senior High School, where she was a student. After school, she was supposed to pick up her six-year-old niece and go to work, police said, but she did not do either. And that's it. That's the whole article. There's a couple of things worth noting in that article. Did you notice in the article it said she was supposed to pick up her niece and then go to work? You'll notice there's no mention of a wrestling meet. Only work. And I only bring this up because I've had some discussions with some local law enforcement that were playing devil's advocate in our conversation, and they were trying to figure out ways around the fact that there was no wrestling meet that day. And understand, there was no real purpose behind them doing that other than us trying to bounce ideas off of each other and me looking for a way to try to tear apart some of these theories, to put on the pile of evidence that proves beyond a reasonable doubt, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Heyman Lee was not going to a wrestling meet that day. She was absolutely going to work at LensCrafters that day. So what does this article mean? Well, again, just like anything in this, we're speculating 15, 16 years later, but the reason it seemed significant to me was this. That article would have been written based on a press release issued by the Baltimore County Police Department. This is something that is commonly done with both law enforcement and the fire service. Anytime we're asking the public for help or we have anything that we want published in the newspaper, we put out a press release asking them to do so. Now, this press release would have come from some sort of meeting, some sort of decision to issue the press release. My theory on this article, not necessarily the NCIC searches, is that on February 3rd, something triggered the Baltimore County Police Department to ramp up their investigation. Heyman Lee had been missing for three weeks at that point. There had been nothing in the newspaper about it. I would theorize that there was a meeting that day. She was still gone. It had been three weeks, most likely getting pressure from the family. And so they're now deciding to ask the public for help. If that is the case, it would also make sense that the Baltimore County Police Department would then put out an APB, a BOL, or perhaps a memo to all the officers to be on the lookout for this vehicle. This case just moved to the top of their desk, and they want to find hay. So how does this relate to the NCIC searches? Again, I want to make perfectly clear that this could mean nothing 
And I'm certainly not discrediting Susan Simpson when she says that it is a possibility that this was somebody who came across Hayes' car, because I do believe that is a possibility. But I do have to say that I also think that it is possible that this meeting took place on February 3rd, during the day, when the brass is in the office. A memo was put out to all the Baltimore County officers to be on the lookout for this vehicle. They issue a press release to the Baltimore Sun. Now, all of the day shift officers would have been present for the meeting, would have had all the brass there to ask the necessary questions. Later, the midnight shift comes in, which is now February 4th. They read the memo, they get the BOL, they get the APB, and maybe around 3 o'clock in the morning, the officer punches in the plate number just to gather more information on what they're looking for. Uh, This is something that's been confirmed with our local law enforcement here, which, again, does not mean that's how it was done in 1999 in Baltimore. But here in Michigan in 2015, uh, it's not an uncommon practice in both dispatchers and some local law enforcement have confirmed that they will occasionally punch the license plate number into their MDTs just to see if there's any more information out there on the case. So it's possible that an officer on the midnight shift around three in the morning does just that. In the morning when shift change happens and the morning shift comes on, they read the same memo, they have the same APB in their daily brief. Once they get in their car, they do the same thing and punch it in. So that's as much follow-up as I think I can really have on the NCIC search on Hayes Plates on February 4th. Uh, And really the only new piece of information was that that press release was issued on that same date, which could lead us to conclude that that would also be a time when the police officers were ramping up their investigation and could have been searching. But again, there's still the possibility that two different officers came across Hayes' car that day and just ran the plates into the system. Unfortunately, I don't think we're ever going to have the real answer to that question some 16 years later. Now, moving forward to the undisclosed Episode 6, The Suspect, that dropped this past Monday, the undisclosed team gave us a lot of new information regarding the police department's investigation of Adnan Syed in this episode. As we walk through the episode, I will be breaking down some of the main points in the episode, but just to summarize, what Rabia, Susan, and Colin laid out in that episode was the fact that the police absolutely had Adnan targeted as their suspect long before they ever should have, and that they had their mind made up long before they ever talked to Jay. Now, it's my opinion, after reading through all of this information and listening to all this information over the past several months, that the Baltimore City Police Department never really had any intention of finding out who killed Hay. But in fact, I believe their intention was to arrest Adnan Syed for killing Hay. One of the most glaring pieces of evidence to reflect that is the fact that they never tried to contact or speak with any of Hayes' friends, anyone at the school, other than the athletic director, to try to find out more about Hayes' whereabouts or what her course of action would have been on that day, January 13th, until after Anand Syed had already been arrested. Now, as an investigator, as soon as this case was handed over to them, their first step should have been to walk through Hayes' day. Now, this may seem insignificant, but from an investigatory point of view, the way they ran this investigation is what we in Michigan refer to as bass backwards. You see, remember, as investigators, we're trying to get to the truth, and we're trying to get there through unbiased eyes. So the first place that you look for clues is retracing steps. We do the same thing with fires. So the logical first step in the investigation of Heyman Lee's murder, the first step should have been to go to the school and start talking to the students. Speak with the students that had class with her. Speak with the students that had lunch with her. Speak with the students that saw her after school, her friends, her teachers. And when I say speak to them, I don't mean asking them if they saw Hay and Anand get in a car together. 
because you're already implanting confirmation bias. But just by asking them, did you see her in class that day? Do you know what time she left? Did you see her get into her car? Was anybody in the car with her? These are questions that should have been asked of Heyman Lee's friends and the staff at Woodlawn High School as soon as this case was handed over to them after her body was found. Remember, her body was found on February 9th. But none of these people were approached. None of them were asked questions. None of them were asked to recount Heyman Lee's afternoon that day. It seems that at that point, the Baltimore Police Department had no interest in figuring out what Hay was doing that day. Because the first contact that we have with any of her friends doesn't happen until March 2nd. Now you'll remember Adnan was arrested and charged with the murder on February 28th. So just procedurally, this is backwards. Then you follow that up with the fact that the police interviewed eight of these young people in the coming days. However, they have only disclosed notes for three out of those eight. Their evidence log index shows that they took written statements from Jeff, Patrice, that's Patrick's sister, Debbie, Aisha, and Anne. However, none of those written statements are included in the police files and certainly were never turned over to the defense. Now, we can speculate that there was a reason they weren't turned over, that perhaps those interviews contained information that might be exculpatory for Adnan, but as was mentioned on Undisclosed, we don't know that for sure, and we can't because they're gone. And therein lies a lot of the problems with us trying to investigate this case. We're 16 years later trying to walk through evidence that was destroyed, hidden, not turned over 16 years ago. And that's really all we have to work off of. Now, is it possible that those interviews contained information that may exonerate Adnan? It's absolutely possible. And it's possible they didn't. But the problem with this entire investigation is that many of the pieces of the puzzle that we need that should be there are gone, and we're left speculating as to whether that was done purposefully or just carelessly. But we do know that there were some intentional actions taken on the part of the Baltimore Police Department to avoid finding any evidence that did not point to Adnan Syed. For example, in Undisclosed Episode 6, it was pointed out that Jay's alibi for the time of the murder was that he was at Jen's house playing video games all day with her brother Mark Pusateri. The police never made any attempt to confirm this alibi. They never spoke with Mark. They never went to his school, at least not that we know about. See, Mark was a 15-year-old student. It would have been very simple to confirm with the school whether or not Mark was in school that day. But they never bothered. They didn't want to find any information that would conflict with their theory of the case. They never retrieved the phone numbers or cell data for any of the incoming calls into Adnan's phone that day, even though they had done this in several other cases. You would think that if they wanted to get to the bottom of this and prove that Adnan did it, they would want those records to get a clearer picture of what went on that day, unless they were afraid, or if they knew, that by getting those incoming call records, it would discredit Jay's entire story, or perhaps even implicate someone else in the murder whom they didn't want drug into this. It's also a fact that the state only subpoenaed cell phone records for other Pakistanis and Muslims. This makes no sense if you're trying to gather as much information as possible to paint a picture of what happened that day. There were so many other people that were so much more closely related to this case and directly involved in it, and they just didn't bother with those. So why just the Pakistanis and the Muslims? Well, that answer comes in the form of a cultural consultant memo created by the Anihi Group that was requested by the Baltimore Police Department on February 15th, two weeks before Adnan was arrested, and six days after her body had been found. Now, to put this in perspective, remember, they have not gone to the school, they have not talked to her friends, they have not talked to her teachers, 
They have not made any attempt to figure out what she was doing that day or when she got in her car and left and who may or may not have been with her at that point. Rather than finding that information, they're asking for this Anihi group to consult on the Muslim and Pakistani culture as it relates to the case. Rabi Ashadri does a great job of describing this memo. Uh, I don't know if I should laugh or cry because it is such a pile of horseshit. And I agree, it is indeed a huge pile of horseshit. This memo is the most horrible, disgusting, bigoted thing that I have ever read. The memo indicates that Adnan would have thought of Hay as an infidel or a devil. It indicated that by giving her a scarf, he had marked his territory forever. It indicated that the Muslim and Pakistani culture would dictate that by Heyman Lee finding a new boyfriend, that would be a violation of his culture, and that it would be acceptable to eliminate her. The memo stated that in Pakistan, this would not have been considered a crime, but instead a matter of honor. A pile of horseshit indeed. Now, in regards to the case, it's very clear that the state got the notion to push the motive for Adnan to murder Hay as being a dishonored Muslim, eliminating the infidel for dishonoring him. And as disgusting as that is, it is almost as disgusting that they are already forming this conclusion weeks before not only arresting Adnan, but before the anonymous phone call, before they spoke with Jen, before they spoke with Jay, they already had him made up in their mind as the suspect. But as an aside, I want to point out that for me, listening to Rabia Chaudhry read that memo just broke my heart. Now, I know Rabia is a very competent and tough woman, but really for the first time in my life, somehow I put myself in the place of a person from a culture or background that is being discriminated against. Now, I've been taught my whole life to always respect others, respect their beliefs, their backgrounds. My parents always taught me to be colorblind. So through my whole life, I've never thought much about prejudice. I've always known that it was a terrible thing and something that I would never do, but for some reason, listening to Rabia read that memo struck me to my core, and it makes what's happened to Adnan seem that much more real to me all of a sudden. I've never been discriminated against. Some of you listening to this have never been discriminated against, and maybe you've never given it a second thought. I am a straight, white, Christian man. By all practical purposes, the most privileged combination of race, creed, and culture in this country and possibly even in the world. I've never experienced someone formulating opinions about me based simply on the color of my skin or what I'm wearing or the church that I walk into. This memo speaks a lot about what went on with this case, but I just wanted to take that brief moment to show my respect for Rabia Chaudhry to even read that filth. And for the first time after hearing her read it, I'm really putting a lot more weight into the idea that this truly was racially or culturally motivated. That's something that I had kind of dismissed months ago and thought maybe this is something that just maybe played a small part in the jury or something like that. But in fact, it is clear that Adnan's race and culture were the driving force behind the police railroading him into prison. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Next, I want to move on to reading some listener emails and tweets. Now, as I go through these, some of these emails, I'll just be summarizing as they're a little bit long, and I'm going to try to get more into the episode. My first email is from Monica in Granger, Indiana. Monica says, Bob, first of all, thanks for putting together such an amazing podcast. It has really helped pull all the facts from Serial and Undisclosed. I have listened to all of your episodes along with the Serial Serial. I recently started listening to the first few episodes of the Crime Writers on Serial. That podcast is the one that helped me form the final thoughts of my theory. This may be nothing but a tinfoil hat conspiracy, but here it goes anyway. I've always been of the belief that Adnan didn't do it, and recently feel like Jay and Jen were both involved with the help of a third person. And that third person is the one that killed Hay, with the plan always being dependent on Adnan. I just never could put a motive on it until today. What if Adnan and Stephanie had become involved with each other after Adnan's breakup with Hay? Adnan says they were close, so it seems likely he would have confided in her after the breakup. Jay would have been upset and maybe would have wanted to hurt Adnan in a similar way. Maybe the third person was just supposed to kidnap Hay, but something went wrong. Maybe that person did hit Hay, knocking her unconscious and put her into the trunk of her own car. So Jay isn't lying about that part completely. Hay just was not dead yet. And what if Mr. S was paid to find the body by Jay or Jen because they were starting to feel guilty? Maybe Jay and Jen had the whole thing planned out, figured Adnan would automatically be a suspect. The ex is always one of the first people they look at. They collaborated on a story that somehow made sense, hoping they would get a deal and keep themselves out of jail. I also don't think the Nisha call is a total pocket dial. I think Jay deliberately called her to make it look like Adnan was with his phone during the time and throw off anyone who might be looking at him for Hay's death. Hopefully all of this makes sense. I feel like I just blabbed on and on. One final thought, go Irish. I heard you mention being a Notre Dame fan during the listener call-in episode. Monica from Granger, Indiana. Thanks for the email, Monica. Now, this is certainly another theory that we can throw onto the possible pile. And I only say that because we don't have any evidence that would refute that theory at this point. Personally, Monica, I don't necessarily think that's likely for a number of reasons, but one being the fact that if they wanted to frame Anon for the murder, the smart thing to do would have been to just stay away and keep their mouths shut. I mean, the idea of them implicating them in the murder with hopes of getting a deal just seems like a bit of a stretch to me. And also, as we peel back the layers of the onion that is this case... We have to start comparing one side of the case with the other sides of the case. We're discovering more and more every day about the corruption of the police department and how they had pegged Adnan as their suspect long before he was ever arrested or they spoke with Jay. So as I compare those two things, I just think it's highly unlikely that the person that Jay and Jen wanted to frame for the murder just happens to be the same person that the police are trying to frame for the murder. But by looking at your theory, I certainly can't say that it's impossible. But for me, and that's just my humble opinion, it will go in the possible, but not necessarily plausible, pile. Thanks again, Monica, for your email. My next email comes from Chris Jameson. Now, this is a little bit of a longer email, so I'm just going to sum it up with the last couple of paragraphs. 
In the main body of the email, Chris references Jay's Intercept interview where he talks about the fact that he wasn't just selling nickel and dime bags, but in fact was running a much bigger drug operation. Chris sums up his email by saying, My theory for a suspect is that it was one of the two mentioned serial killers who killed Hay in an opportunistic attack. In my mind, there is just not enough solid evidence to say it was any of the other main suspects. The DNA will certainly point us in the right direction, I have no doubt. All along, I wasn't ever sure why Jay would lie to the police, and especially in the manner he did. But I think now it's obvious that in his mind, he was not only protecting himself, but also his family and even Jen. Fifteen years later, he is protecting his pride. Sixty million people have downloaded Serial. I know I wouldn't want 60 million people knowing a lie I had told had led to an innocent man being locked up for his entire adult life. I don't know, maybe just some blabbering on an email, but with the growing power of this podcast, I'm sure we will know very soon. Keep up the good work. Thanks for reading, Chris. Thank you for the email, Chris, and I think you may be onto something here in the fact that you're right. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense for Jay to lie in the way he did for some petty nickel-and-dime drug dealing. I personally am not of the opinion that Jay was completely uninvolved and then completely made up all of it, but I do think having a much larger drug operation going on, if that's true, could possibly explain why Jay was willing to play ball with the police when they were feeding him this story. Thanks again, Chris, and stay in touch. My next email is from a gentleman named Blake. Now, this is another long email, but Blake did have some points at the bottom that I thought I would throw out. First, he asks, Can we verify Hay's route to pick up her cousin? And Blake, as far as I know, no one knows for sure which route she took to pick up her cousin. You can get on maps and you can determine a number of routes that she may take and break that down to a couple of routes that were most likely. Uh, namely, there was one route where she would get onto the highway and go around. That was actually the fastest route, according to MapQuest. Uh, and then another route involves uh, a road called Essex Road. Uh, either way, you're looking at a seven-minute or a nine-minute ride, depending which route she takes. And, of course, there's lots of other roads between Woodlawn High and the Learning Center that she could have possibly cut over on. I don't know that we can know that for sure. Now, most of the route talk revolves around the residence of Roy Davis, and he actually didn't live very far from the Learning Center or her home. And the fact is that either route would have put her right in that neighborhood on her way to the Learning Center. Another thought from Blake is, Mr. S is key. He's not just a suspect. I'm 100% sure he has information on the murder of, or at bare minimum, the burial. And I'll say that I agree with that, Blake. I believe that he is a key. I don't know that he's the key, but I definitely don't buy the story that he happened to be stopping to take a leak in the woods and came across the body. I feel pretty strongly that he had information about where her body was, and he went out there looking for it. And wherever he got that information is a place that just leads us one step closer to finding out who actually committed the murder. Blake ends his email with, And lastly, I appreciate your line of thought and necessity of reason. But I'd like for us to keep in mind that teenagers who are involved with murders and burial may not make logical decisions. I've got plenty of people saying, Well, Jay didn't do that because it doesn't make any sense. Well, that doesn't matter. He probably didn't know what the hell he was doing. Again, thanks for reading. Best wishes, Blake. Again, thank you, Blake, for that email, and please keep in touch. And our next email is from Bridget. Bridget writes, Bob, is there any reason to believe Hay wasn't killed on January 13th? Is there definitive proof that she was? Is it possible she was kidnapped and killed at a later date? I don't know if that makes much of a difference, just something I've been thinking about. Bridget. Thank you, Bridget, for that email, and... 
I think it would make a big difference. I think that if we had some information or evidence that would lead us to believe that Hay was actually held captive somewhere and murdered at a later date, then yeah, that would certainly make a difference. Everyone's timelines are called into question now. We're looking at different periods of time for alibis and witness statements and things of that nature. However, from what I've seen, and I'm by no means a medical expert, but from what I've seen and read from people who are medical experts, it seems very likely that she was actually murdered and buried on the 13th, or at least murdered on the 13th. As you heard in Undisclosed Episode 5, The Autopsy, the doctor agreed that with all of the evidence gathered together from the autopsy report, it would be consistent of a body that had been dead and buried for a period of four weeks. And it's also my understanding from things that I've read that she didn't show any other signs of trauma, meaning if she had been captured, if she was held captive, uh, there's no wounds from her fighting or being tied up or anything like that. So I can't say that we know for sure, but from the evidence that I found, in my opinion, I think it's very likely that she was actually murdered and buried on the 13th. Thanks for that email, Bridget, and please keep in touch. My next email is from Stacy Aaron. Stacy says, Hi, Bob. Wondering about your thoughts on the whole DEA involvement in the case. I know there have been theories floating around for some time about a possible criminal informant somehow being involved. Early on, I thought that sounded really far-fetched. But the more we learn about how this case was investigated, or more accurately, not investigated, the more I consider this angle a possibility. Rabia didn't seem to want to go that far in this week's episode, but I'm not quite willing to dismiss the idea yet. Obviously, many more facts are needed, and I don't know if they would even be obtainable if they do exist. But hopefully Susan will be able to dig something up if this was indeed part of why Adnan was railroaded in this case. The fact that Jay, from a drug dealer family, is involved and has gotten off for every offense since testifying, the DEA was doing covert subpoenas, and Yurik ends up as the prosecutor, just seems like quite a coincidence. Any thoughts on this angle? Thanks, Stacy Arend. Well, thanks, Stacy, for this email. This is something that has been addressed to me in lots and lots of emails, and it's something that I've been kind of keeping under my hat until I had more information, and it's really starting to occur to me that I don't think I'm going to find any information if it's out there. Now, it is possible that Jay was a CI or a criminal informant, and that's possibly why he was protected in this case. Uh, in my personal opinion, I think it actually is quite plausible that that's what was going on here. I don't know how it fits into a whole large conspiracy angle with the narcotics prosecutor prosecuting the murder case and grabbing him to create a testimony out of thin air. Personally, I think that it's possible that Jay was involved, he was in deep trouble, and when he tried to pin it on Adnan, McGillivary and Ritz's ears perked up because that's the suspect they had already been working on for several weeks. Maybe given a relationship that they already had with Jay as a CI, help them use him to reframe his story to put Adnan in prison and to protect their informant. But unfortunately, like many of the rabbit holes we're running down in this case, there's just no way that we can know that for sure right now. But thank you again, Stacy, for that email, and again, please stay in touch. Next, I have an email from Simon. Simon says, Hi, Bob. Firstly, congratulations on the show. Really enjoying the discussion, and it's great to have another voice in between serial and undisclosed. I just wanted to point out a couple of things regarding Hayes' car that I haven't seen mentioned. Firstly, I know Undisclosed mentioned both on your show and theirs that the car next to Hayes in the photo on the Undisclosed website has a club lock on the steering wheel. But if you look further into the photo, you can see that the rear quarter window on that vehicle is smashed. Secondly, the police scene drawing of the area where the car was found shows cars on either side of Hayes, but the photograph shows the vehicle on the right is no longer present. 
I have worked as a forensic scene crime officer previously, and surely this area would have been controlled for full processing, and clearly the owner of the adjacent vehicle must have spoken with the police and possibly been interviewed about the site. Not sure if this helps, but it does somewhat explain the club lock on the vehicle present in the photo, but also shows a lack of control of a secondary crime scene. Thanks, and I look forward to the next episode. Simon. That is a great poll, Simon. Um, I did look at the photo, and I see what you're talking about as far as the window in that car being smashed in. Um, I couldn't tell 100% that that's what that was, but it certainly does look like maybe that window was broken. But the discovery that the police sketch shows a vehicle parked next to Hayes' car that is not there in the photos is very telling. It could mean a couple of things. Either the sketch was fabricated, which would not be out of the question in this case, given everything else that we've seen in this investigation, or the vehicle was there when they started processing the scene, and it got moved. And like you said, that scene would have been secured. No one would have been allowed in or out. The only way that car could have been moved is if the owner of it spoke to the police, let them know that they needed to move their vehicle, and they allowed them into the secured area to do so. But if that had been the case, then that means that the police did indeed speak to someone who had a car parked right next to Hayes' car. Why didn't they ask that individual how long Hayes' car had been there? Or if they did ask them, why don't we have any record of it? This is a great observation, and I think it could be telling us a whole lot. So I want to ask that we keep this ball rolling with all of you out there in the Serial Dynasty Army. Let's see what more we can find out about this. And let me know if and when you find anything out. And Simon, thanks again for the email, and we'll be in touch. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. My next email is from Jillian Wright. Jillian writes, Hi, Bob. Really enjoying the podcast. Thanks for all your hard work. Just a quick thought regarding your theory about Hay possibly interrupting an attempted carjacking, and that is, if she got out of the car to go into a gas station or wherever, which then enabled the carjacking to take place, what was she wearing on her feet? As I understand it, her black heels were found inside the car. I believe she was found barefoot. Surely this rules out the possibility that she got out of her car at any point, unless there were other shoes in the car which she had put on to drive in. But then where are those shoes? Questions, questions, and more questions. Thanks, Jillian from Oxford, England. Thank you, Jillian, for that email. And actually, that's a good point that I hadn't really thought of. Uh, while it was a warm day, it was still in the 50s. And you're right, it's probably not likely that she stopped and went into, say, a gas station or some store because most stores won't allow you in them without any shoes on. And it's also unlikely that she would even go into a friend's house or anywhere walking outside barefoot. So that definitely starts to tear down the idea of the fact that she was out of her car doing something and interrupted somebody carjacking her car. 
Of course, we still have the possibility that during the struggle, the shoes came off and the killer threw them in the back seat of her car. We just don't know. But that definitely does make the idea of her being out of her car, out doing something less likely, still not impossible. Thanks a lot, Jillian. That's a great catch. My next email is from Mike. Mike says, Hi, Bob. Love the show. Keep up the great work you're doing. I was listening to Serial Episode 1, and at a point, Sarah reads Asia's letter to Adnan. Sarah states that Asia noted at the bottom of the page that her boyfriend and his friend remember seeing you too. However, later in Serial, when Sarah talks to the boyfriend, he says it could have happened, but he doesn't remember. Now, if you and I went somewhere and had a random conversation with someone I kind of knew and you have never met, which seemed like a normal casual encounter, you may not remember it if I asked you about it at some point in the distant future, especially 15 years later, I'm sure. However, if two months after that casual meeting I told you, Bob, remember that person we ran into? Well, they were charged with murder. Regardless of whether you knew the exact date of the encounter, you would remember that we encountered that person at some point. So, Asia's boyfriend sounded as if he didn't recollect the interaction in the library with Anon at all. But Asia said he did in that letter to Anon, and I'd have to think if she'd mentioned it in the letter, a discussion took place between Asia and her boyfriend. I know there are so many reasons not to think Adnan did this, and I'm still on board with Adnan's innocence. But isn't this something that we should think about a bit? Let me know what you think. Mike from East Brunswick, New Jersey. Thanks, Mike. Mike, I can definitely see your point on this, and it's a little questionable. But for me, like you said, they're asking this guy that was you know, two people removed from the situation 15 years later about a brief encounter he had while picking up his girlfriend in a library 16 years ago. Now, there is some truth to what you said, that there must have been a discussion that happened after that, but it sounded to me like her boyfriend had no real connection with anyone in that school other than Asia. So maybe at that time the conversation went simply, hey, remember that day when you picked me up at the library and then we were fighting because I was talking to that one guy? He says, sure, I remember that. Well, he's been arrested for murder. Now, we don't know this guy. We don't know his personality. His reaction could have been, huh, no shit, and went about his business. Or he could have been deeply interested. We just don't know. But I know that for me, trying to think back 15 years ago, my long-term memory about details like that is terrible. And I think everybody's different when it comes to that. I've ran into people that I went to high school with that were in my close circle of friends that I hadn't seen for 15 years and couldn't remember their names, which I know is pretty ridiculous, but that's just how my memory works. So, yeah, it certainly could be something or it could be nothing. Uh, remember that the boyfriend's friend, I think, when Sarah interviewed him, didn't even remember who Asia even was. So you're right, that's certainly something to think about, and I do appreciate the email. Now, the last email I want to read is from Edna, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce the last name. Edna says, The more I listen to Undisclosed, the more I have to smack my head. How on earth did the police department and Yurik get away with this? They never looked any further than Adnan. It's a damn shame that this young man has had his life ruined. Even if they get him a new trial and he is set free, he will always have the stigma of this. Love the show. By the way, I'm just south of you in Ohio. Keep up the great work, and hopefully with it all, Anon will be set free. Thanks, Edna, for taking the time to send me that quick note. And I agree with you 100%. It's devastating. And every week when Undisclosed comes out and they pull up more information, and every time I open up my email inbox and see all the emails from you listeners with more and more information on the case, it just makes me sick to my stomach. And like you said, even if Adnan is set free, he's still going to live with this stigma for the rest of his life. And it's tragic. Now, the last correspondence I want to read here is a tweet from Kimberly Kelly at KimberlyAnn274. It's actually a series of four tweets, and I'll read them in order. 
She says, disappointed in the bias of serial and undisclosed. Will anyone explore reasons why Adnan might actually be guilty? I'm guessing not because it's not cool, but in reality, it's probably the truth. Sad for Hay's family and friends. And P.S. I'm not a Jay defender. I think he helped Adnan kill Hay and is equally guilty. But that does not exculpate Adnan. Thanks, Kimberly, for tweeting that to me. And I do want to address this topic a little bit, so I appreciate you doing so. First of all, in regard to your question, will anyone explore reasons why Adnan might actually be guilty? My response to that is, yes, someone did. Absolutely people have explored this possibility. The Baltimore Police Department and the state's prosecution did everything that they possibly could to explore this possibility. And they presented that case at trial. And they were successful. Adnan was convicted. I think that the reason that you're not seeing more and more people throwing out more and more evidence proving that Adnan committed this crime is simply because there isn't any more. Myself, along with millions of other listeners of Serial, have dug as deeply into the woods as possible to try to find any more information. But the fact of the matter is, we haven't found any other information that would implicate Adnan as being guilty of this crime. And despite your contention that the only reason people don't want to admit that they think Adnan is guilty is because it's not the cool thing to do, that really couldn't be further from the truth. I do believe Adnan Syed is innocent. When I first started listening to Serial, I had no idea what Serial even was. It was a podcast everyone was talking about, so I decided to give it a try. Throughout Serial, I wavered back and forth and back and forth in regards to Adnan's innocence or guilt. When Serial ended, when Serial ended, I was left with an uneasy feeling. I felt sure, based on the information Sarah Koenig had presented, that most certainly Adnan should not have been convicted of this crime. But I was still very much undecided as to whether or not he did commit the crime. That led me down the path of continuing to search for more evidence, more information, more people talking about the case, more people investigating the case and writing about it and blogging about it. My tendency as a human being is to be a skeptic. So every time I saw people presenting evidence implicating Adnan's innocence, I would immediately go to work fact-checking. In fact, when the Undisclosed podcast first aired, I heard in the first episode when they declared that the wrestling meet that supposedly occurred on January 13th, in fact did not occur on that date, but actually took place on January 5th, I didn't believe it. My first tweet to the Undisclosed podcast was short and sweet, and it was from my personal account, not from the Serial Dynasty account, because I hadn't created the Serial Dynasty yet at that point. But I'm sure if you have time on your hands and you really want to see, you'll see a tweet from at BobRuff4101 to the Undisclosed Podcasts, asking, do you have source documents for this? I didn't believe it. I wasn't biased. I thought there was no possible way that the police and the prosecution and Gutierrez could all have missed this blaring fact. Colin Miller tweeted back to go to the Undisclosed website and look through the documents. I did that, and sure enough, there it was the newspaper clippings proving the fact that there was no wrestling meet on January 13th. But I was still skeptical, so instead of taking their word for it, I went to the Baltimore Sun's website. I searched and searched and searched, and ended up paying money to be able to access archives to confirm that that document was indeed valid. So my point is, there was no bias here. Over the last few months, I have come to the conclusion that in my opinion, Anon was not only falsely convicted, but I also believe he was 100% innocent of this crime altogether. And I don't believe that because that's the cool thing to believe. I believe that because that's the direction the evidence points us in. 
the Undisclosed Podcasts, and the Serial Dynasty for that matter, is giving to Adnan the thing that he was denied back in 1999, a legitimate defense. There is now an army of millions of people standing behind Adnan to fight for his release from prison. But that army hasn't grown to that size and magnitude based on a trend or what's cool. This army was built upon a foundation of truth and fact and evidence. What evidence has led me to believe that Adnan is innocent? I could spend two full episodes rehashing all of the evidence and all of the reasons why. But as a brief summary to answer your question, the state presented the best possible case to convict Syed. At this point, I can walk through their case, their best argument, their best theory of what happened in 1999 on January 13th, and can point by point refute every step of their timeline. I don't believe it was even possible for Adnan to have been involved in this. I believe Asia McLean that Adnan was in the library until at least 2.40. Her story was corroborated by Adnan's own statement that he would have went to the library after school. I believe Coach Sai when he says Adnan was at track practice at 3.30 and walked the track with him and discussed prayers as he was leading at the mosque. And I believe his testimony corroborates Adnan's own testimony of the events of that day. Anon was convicted based on cell phone pings that appear to show that he was in the area of Lincoln Park around 7 p.m., and the lying scoundrel Jay Wilds told the police that that's when Anon and he were burying Hay's body. But none of that was true. We know now that it is not medically possible for Hay to have been buried at 7 p.m. We know that in Jay Wilds' most recent Intercept interview, he's now changed his story to match the medical evidence stating that they actually buried Hay at midnight. But he also states that Adnan called him from his cell phone to meet up to go bury the body. Except for the fact that Adnan's cell phone records prove that he never called Jay Wilds that night. Nothing adds up. Nothing makes sense. I've ran a thousand theories through my mind and compared every one of them to the evidence that we have in front of us. In regards to Adnan, the only theory that fits all of the evidence infallibly is that January 13, 1999 was just a normal day for this young man and that he was not only not involved in this murder, but had no knowledge of it. On February 28, 1999, when he was arrested, he was a confused 17-year-old boy that didn't even understand why he was being arrested. He didn't realize the gravity of his situation. He had the same naive perspective of our criminal justice system that most of us have. That most of the time they get the right guy. And if you didn't do it, you're going to go home. But the fact is, that's not true. And out of all of the cities in this great country, the city of Baltimore is one of the most glaring examples of this type of injustice. I was researching this week the Baltimore Police Department, and I found an interesting fact. The national average for police departments closing murder cases, meaning murders that are committed, they investigate, they find the culprit and arrest them and send them to trial. That national average is about 62% of those cases are closed. The Baltimore Police Department, which has one of the highest crime rates in the country and is dealing with nearly one murder per day, has a close rate on murder cases of 95%. That's right, in 95% of murders that occur in the city of Baltimore, a suspect is arrested, charged, and sent to trial. That statistic was taken from 2004. It was the most accurate stat that I could find. That number either means they're the best police department in the country and they're incredibly efficient, or more likely it indicates some severe corruption, a rush to justice, failure to pay attention to detail, and an insistence to quickly close cases and move on to the next. 
You see, we've been beating our heads against the wall trying to figure out why. Why Adnan? Why did the detectives do this? Why did Yurik and Murphy do this? But it seems to me that the fact is that this wasn't that one special murder case where they decided they were going to railroad somebody into trial and close the case. But it was one of thousands. There are more Adnan Syeds out there, sitting in prison right now, that have experienced the exact same thing, and it's tragic. In Adnan's case, I believe in a rush to close this case, a case that was giving the local police department more grief than most, because of the fact that it was the second similar murder in a nine-month span in the same area, led the police and the prosecution to quickly start grasping at straws. The racism and bigotry here makes me sick. After reading the cultural consultant memo, it seems obvious to me that if Adnan Syed had been Bob Ruff, the straight white Christian male, not only would he have never even seen the inside of a courtroom, but he would have also never even seen the inside of a police station. Kimberly, there was literally zero evidence indicating that Adnan Syed committed this murder. None. There's lots and lots of evidence that indicates someone else did. Fingerprints in Hay's car that were only tested against Anon and Hay and no one else. Hairs that were found on Hay's body in the grave were only tested against Anon and Hay. They didn't match either. Yet the police decided not to search any further for another suspect. Baltimore PD doesn't investigate evidence that might complicate their case. The brandy bottle with the epithelial cells never tested. The car that had supposedly been sitting in a lot for six weeks surrounded by other cars. None of the other car owners ever questioned. Witnesses never spoken to. Incoming call records never sought out. The list goes on and on. But if you can see all of that and still believe that the police department ever attempted to find any other suspect in this case other than a non-Syed, you have blinders on. Kimberly, you claim bias. What I would ask of you is not to agree with me, but just look at this case again through objective eyes. I respect your opinions, I really do, but I want you to look through this case one more time without having the presumption in your mind that Anon is guilty, but rather afford him the right that our Constitution requires that he was never given, that he is innocent until proven guilty. Now for the rest of you listeners, many of you have asked me what is my current theory on the case, and I have to be honest with you, I have lots of theories but I don't pretend to know what happened on that day yet. I've worked the angle of Anon being the culprit, and that one doesn't pan out. Was it Jay? I don't know. Was it Roy Davis? I think that there's a considerable possibility that it was, but I don't know. Was it Ronald Lee Moore? It most certainly could have been. Was Jen involved? I believe she was in some way, but I haven't figured out how yet. What about Mr. S.? I think Mr. S. certainly knew that that body was there, but we haven't yet determined how he found that out yet. Could it have been Don? I get lots and lots of emails about Don. And for you listeners who are sending those in, believe me when I say I'm not ignoring them. It's just that I have no evidence to back up any speculations about Don at this point because the police never investigated him, so there's not much to work on there. But could he have been involved? We can't rule that out. I don't have the answer that you're looking for yet, but I still believe that we're going to find it. Personally, I don't think that we're going to find it by finding some 16-year-old piece of evidence. Unless the Innocence Project is successful in getting the DNA and hairs tested, it's going to be up to us to figure this out. 
So how are we going to do that? What is the purpose of this show continuing on? Someone right now is shaking in their boots. They're listening to what we're doing. They're reading what we're writing. They know that we're getting closer to the truth, and they're one step closer to landing in a prison cell for the rest of their life. As we keep putting the pressure on, someone's going to talk. And if that person's listening right now, you have the opportunity to right this terrible wrong. And if you don't, we will. The Serial Dynasty is funded by listeners like you through your generous donations. The show has always been free and will continue to be free for all of you listeners. If you'd like to help contribute to the cause, go to SerialDynasty.com and click the donate button. You can also help fund the show by going to audibletrial.com slash Serial Dynasty and downloading your free audiobook. That's audibletrial.com slash Serial Dynasty. I'm asking for your help to continue growing this audience and building this army by sharing the Serial Dynasty on Facebook and Twitter. Please take a moment to go onto iTunes and review the show. And as always, the most important thing that you can do to continue this movement is to continue to send in your thoughts and theories to theories at SerialDynasty.com. Special thanks to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all of the music for the show. And until next week, this has been The Serial Dynasty.